0: Hello and welcome to The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. So last week, folks, I gave you 15, and also a bonus tale about Abraham Lincoln, great paranormal and unexplained stories from Illinois that fit in perfectly during the spooky season. Now, you should know here at The Paranormal Sun, we don't do anything by halves, so here we go. I'm doubling down with 15 more, and of course, I haven't forgotten the bonus tale for you, Coming up later on in the program. So, first and foremost, folks, I hope that you did enjoy the Halloween special, which came out on the Friday before Halloween. If you haven't had a chance, go back and listen to that. That's just all straight stories and tales. So, that's all stories that I've heard, or, you know, I've been involved in, or friends of mine, or listeners to the show have provided. So, if you haven't had a chance, you know, go back and check that out because I think you would really enjoy it. And that one is just straight stories. There's no news of the damned or anything else. So we're straight into the meat of it. Now, you know, as I said, when I started looking into doing some of these Tales of Illinois for you for Halloween, I found that, you know, it was just way too big to do in one episode. That's why I split it into two. And I didn't actually realize until I got a bit too close to Halloween that it was going to be two. So that's why we're doing one in early November. But nevertheless, I think you'll really enjoy this one. These 16 stories are just as good as the first 16. So uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. And as always, you know, as I say, if there's something you'd like me to cover on the show or there's something you'd like to know a bit more about, just, you know, drop me a line. Um Sometimes there's not a lot more out there to find than what I already have, but uh you never know. There are some things that, um you know, might be out there that I haven't researched all the way up to... Uh, up to the end so you know let me know if there is something interesting that you'd like to hear more about so first and foremost look folks as always thank you to everyone in the world listening to this it means the world to me i really do appreciate it uh you know i was having a look a little bit earlier here at the uh paranormal sun and i've got you know people in 20 countries now have listened and you know all over in the u.s and thank you so much to everyone you know Again, during these Halloween shows, I've tried to keep the the thanks kind of brief. But, you know, everyone out there knows how important you are to me. And there are certain people who have been there the whole journey. And, of course, I really appreciate what you've done for me. And thank you very much for everyone, you know, for supporting me. Now, to Harry and Lisa, I do want to give one very quick special shout-out. Thank you so much, uh, you know, for sending me some really nice memories of home for my birthday. Uh, thank you for sending through some some things that I've really missed. So, you know, it, it really means the world to me, especially since mom's passed. I don't really get a lot of that stuff. So, you know, you can't know how much it means to me. Thank you so much. Now, uh, again, you know, we're going to keep it brief with the shout outs here tonight, but um, I also just want to very quickly thank two very good friends of the show who have just done a great job promoting and trying to help me grow the show. So, To Scott, Matt, and Dave over at the Old 77 Podcast, thank you so much. I've been listening to your programs. You know, it's been great. I really do enjoy listening to it, and I've noticed that, you know, you've been giving me and the programs a plug in every show, and look, it it really means the world to me. You know, uh, for those of you that don't know, might be new listeners to the show, you know, I'm out of work, so anything like that, I really do appreciate it. I'd really like to build the program up. Uh, When I go back to work eventually, unless unless somebody decides that they want to give me a million dollar grant to uh, sponsor me, just staying home and being a full time podcaster, it will really help. You know, if the program's built up a bit and I've I've got listeners, so it just helps me. You know, continue to have that motivation to put out these good programs for you. So again, thank you so much to the old seventy seven, also to my friends at the quite unusual podcast in Chicago. Thank you so much, ladies, uh, to Noel and uh, Nicole. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for, you know, again, giving the show shout-outs. I do appreciate it, and um, it means the world to me. Thank you so much. And for anyone out there, if you're looking for a couple of good podcasts, you know, definitely go out there and check these people out there. Not only are the shows great, but it's really good people, you know, like I say, and um, I quite enjoy listening to them. They're definitely on my playlist. So with that being said, you know, again, like I say, folks, I hope that you've had a really good festive season Those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, I hope that you're enjoying fall and autumn and all the great things that you get to have with that, you know, cooler temperatures, you know, uh, having things in the oven, you know, maybe some roasted things in the oven and pies and cakes and cookies that you might not have during the summer months. I really do hope that you're enjoying yourself for, you know, the listeners anywhere else in the world again, you know. I just really hope that this month so far has been great for you. And, uh, you know, time flies. Here we are, you know. Uh, the year is not very far from being over. So with all that being said, you know, new listeners to the program, you may not know, but I always do a segment called The News of the Damned. So Charles Fort was one of the kind of founding fathers of the modern day paranormal and unexplained as we understand it. And Charles Fort was one of the first people who started gathering things in newspapers and magazines, putting them into books and then publishing them so that, you know, you and I could go through and read them and, you know, just kind of see what's going on and see some of these phenomenon going on all over the world. Well, any news that was excluded or ignored by science because it didn't fit their paradigm, uh, Charles Fort referred to as damned data. Therefore, this segment is always called the news of the damned. And I always try to bring you three to four articles that, you know, will... Definitely fit into these categories, but hopefully that you also have a little bit of enjoyment in. So tonight I've got four. A couple of them are quite short and a couple of them are a little bit longer. But first, just before I get into the news of the damned really quickly, uh, again, if you're wondering how you can support the show, how you can, you know, give me some, uh, give me some play, you can tell someone, you know, like I say, you know, if you've got a friend or someone who you feel might enjoy, kind of the rantings of uh of this madman down here in uh down under if there's someone who you think might enjoy the show by all means you know turn them on to the program you can go and send me an email like i say if you've got any questions comments something you'd like me to read on air something that you would like me to investigate by all means you know you can email me at uh, the sun at com you can also go to the paranormalsun.com website that's my website uh, you know i've got all the shows hosted there i try and keep you know semi up with the blog there you can also go and follow on instagram just the paranormal sun uh on instagram and then also on you know facebook i've got a facebook group page called the paranormal sun so you can go and follow me anywhere there you know if you're feeling generous You can go onto the Paranormal Sun website, drop a few dollars in my PayPal link. You can also go and support me on Patreon. And those who have supported me on Patreon in the past, thank you so much. It means all the world. And um, with me not having any income, and I'm not going to lie, things have been quite tight the last few months. Uh, Honestly, the money that you've given to me has really helped me keep the show going. And I do appreciate it. So with all that being said, Let's get into the news of the dam for this evening. and uh, the first one here is from the coast to coastam.com website. So I've got a couple from Coast to CoastAM and the first one here, uh, and this is bylined by Tim Benall, uh, who is the, who is the uh, website guru over there. So as I always say, anything from coast to coast will be Tim Banal is usually the you know attributed person. And this one says, Happy National Sasquatch Awareness Day. And this is from the 20th of October. It says, In the pantheon of odd and obscure holidays, October 20th stands out as a date which may be of particular interest to paranormal enthusiasts as it happens to be National Sasquatch Awareness Day. The concept was first proposed back in 2009 by way of a Change.org petition, presumably meant to mark the anniversary of the filming of the iconic Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film, On October 20th, 1967. Although the idea initially received middling support online, it has since slowly grown over time, not unlike the legend of Bigfoot itself. This year, the burgeoning holiday caught the attention of Oregon television station KPTV, who dispatched reporter Joe Vithalagil to the North American Bigfoot Center, which is located in the ironically named city of Boring (laughs) and helmed by Finding Bigfoot star Chris Berrickman. Reflecting on the impact of the Patterson-Gimlin movie, he mused that the footage was the best and the first footage obtained of a Sasquatch, and it's one of the only ones that holds up to that level even now. Meanwhile, indicative of how October 20th holds a special place in Sasquatch lore, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts signed a proclamation recognizing the date as Bigfoot Crossroads of Nebraska Day. Honored as part of the decree is Harriet McFeely, who operates a museum devoted to the cryptid in the city of Hastings that made headlines earlier this year when it acquired a flag believed to have been shredded and braided by Bigfoot. And I covered that on the program. Although National Sasquatch Awareness Day has yet to achieve the level of notoriety afforded to Extraterrestrial Culture Day or World UFO Day, which is inexplicably two separate dates, it's likely only a matter of time until it becomes as much a part of the paranormal calendar as those aforementioned celebrations, once word about it grows. To that end, it would seem that perhaps the only thing holding the holiday back is, ironically, a lack of awareness that it exists. So, you know, I like articles like this, folks, because they're having a bit of a tongue-in-cheek, you know, poke at uh, the fact that a lot of people say that Bigfoot is imaginary or make-believe. But um, I never forget the 20th of October, because that was uh, my late mother's birthday. And um, it's It's a special day for me, and uh, but I I didn't even know that there was a Sasquatch Awareness Day. So as I say, folks, every time I research for this show, I learn something new. So the next one I've got here for you, and there's a video in here. And as always, folks, uh, if you go to the show notes, you can follow the links to these articles. And there is a video here, and it's quite interesting. And so if you want to see the video, you can go over and have a look at it. And this is quite a short one. And this one is titled, Watch, Bizarre One-Eyed Albino Baby Shark Discovered in Indonesia. Says a group of fishermen in Indonesia were absolutely astonished when they cut open a catch and discovered a bizarre one-eyed albino baby shark inside the creature. The shocking find was reportedly made on October the 10th as a crew of anglers were working on the waters of the country's Maluka province. Upon pulling in a large adult shark, They proceeded to slice the fish open in order to remove its gut, and in the process, they discovered the jaw-dropping oddity. We found three babies inside its stomach, but one of them looked strange with only one eye, recalled one of the fishermen. Its color was strange too, like milk. Perhaps sensing that no one would believe their story, the fishermen managed to take several pictures of the incredible-looking creature, which had sadly perished before they had found it. Experts say that the explanation for the shark's remarkable and incredibly rare appearance is that it had both albinism and cyclopia. So albinism is obviously, you know, when something is born of a very pale white nature, uh, skin-wise, uh, there are albino humans, and cyclopeism would be that it was born with one eye. But it is quite freaky. I'm just looking at the, you know, kind of still shot of it right now, and it's quite freaky. So again, um, I encourage you to go over there and check that out, folks, if you'd like to see this one-eyed baby shark. Now, This article's been doing the rounds, so if you've already heard it, I do apologize, but um, it's new enough that I think I should cover it, and then I'll give you my humble opinion on it. So this one comes from msn.com, and this one is titled, Miley Cyrus says she made eye contact with an alien before being chased by a UFO, and this came out on the 23rd of October or thereabouts. It says Miley Cyrus has claimed she made eye contact with an extraterrestrial being after it chased her down in some sort of UFO while she was driving in California. Speaking to Interview Magazine, Cyrus said she saw a flying snowplow, which was glowing yellow, in an experience that left her shaken for five days and, quote, effed her up. I got chased down by some sort of UFO, she said. The best way to describe it is a flying snowplow. It had this big plow in the front of it and was glowing yellow. I'm pretty sure about what I saw, but I'd also brought bought whack, weed wax from a guy in a van in front of a taco shop, so it could have been the weed wax. I don't know what weed wax is, folks. I guess I'm a bit old, but I would assume it's marijuana, you know, some derivative. It says the wrecking ball singer insist, insisted she did see the object flying and that her friend did too. There were a couple of other cars on the road and they also stopped to look, so I think what I saw was real, she said. Cyrus said she didn't feel threatened, but she did lock eyes with a being sitting in the front of the aircraft. It looked at me, and we made eye contact, and I think that's what really shook me, looking into the eyes of something that I couldn't quite wrap my head around, she said. The 27-year-old said she couldn't look at the sky the same after the incident. I thought they might come back. Cyrus isn't the only chart-topping singer claiming close encounters of the third kind. Over the weekend, fellow pop star Demi Lovato urged her Instagram followers to communicate with aliens through an app. If we were to get 1% of the population to meditate and make contact, we would force our governments to acknowledge the truth about extraterrestrial life among us and change our destructive habits, destroying our planet, she wrote on social media. Lovato shared images and video of the night sky that she claimed was evidence from under the stars in the desert sky that can no longer be ignored and must be shared immediately. So, look, folks, here is my two cents on this. First and foremost, as I've said before, not everything is for everyone. So, there are plenty of people, for example, that believe in extraterrestrials and do not believe in Bigfoot. And there are plenty of people who believe in Bigfoot and don't believe in ETs and so on and so forth. Some people believe this conspiracy theory, some people believe that conspiracy theory. Personally, I do try to keep an open mind because when you're dealing with unproven things, I personally think it's a bit condescending for me to believe that my cryptid or my explanation for this, that, or the other is right and yours is wrong and your favorite theory can't exist. Now, I'm not going to lie. There are some that I hear, and I've said it before, that really make me make me uh, roll my eyes, and it's quite hard for me to take them seriously, but I will at least listen to them and hear them out. And as you know on this program, I encourage you to make up your own mind. I try not to move the dial in one direction or the other too much and tell you this is what happened, because I, I truly believe that how we need to grow in society is, We all need to be adults and make up our own minds about these things. So I do my best to lay out things and then allow you to make up your own mind. Now, with all that having been said, you know, there are people who say, oh, well, you know, Miley Cyrus, she's already wacko. Uh, Demi Lovato, oh, she was a druggie. Look, I don't think, A, I don't think it's got anything to do with that. I've known plenty of people who have had plenty of marijuana and alcohol And I've known people who have shot heroin, and none of those people have ever come to me and said, oh, I shot heroin and I saw a UFO. So, you know, yes, there are drugs out there that can alter your perception of reality. And if she would have said, oh, I just stopped and got some LSD before I saw this, maybe I would look at it differently. But the way that I look at it is, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Now, there are really super serious people in the UFO community that will get really upset that people like Miley Cyrus and Demi Lovato and other people are making comments on UFOs. But to me, if it brings people's attention to the subject matter, who the hell cares? It's a good thing. We need more people paying attention to what's going on, not less. Because, like I say, if even 5% of these cases have something to them, whatever it may be, then we're still dealing with a hell of a lot going on, and it's something very important to mankind and the planet Earth, in my humble opinion. So again, I'll have a link. If you haven't read that or you are interested in, in seeing more on that, I'll have a link in the show notes. Now, I've had a few comments as time has gone on from different, you know, listeners of the show and friends and that who have said, oh, you know, well, JT, what goes on in New Zealand? And you know, Can you give me a bit more of kind of the weird and strange that goes on in New Zealand? So, I have specifically got a very good article for you. And look, I'd not heard about this. I stumbled across it as I prepared for a future program, okay? Now, this comes from New Zealand. It is much more in kind of the histories, mysteries type vein. But to me, it's fascinating. Now, this is a bit of an older article, and it's two parts. So, I'm going to read you one half tonight. And one half the next program, so this came from November of two thousand eighteen, and this is from the e local magazine so it's it's like a free magazine that goes around here um you know, and I can't think of what it would be like back in the u s It's been too long since I've been gone, but you know it just turns up in your letterbox, you don't order it, it just tends to show up, but I found this electronically online, and it definitely piqued my curiosity immediately. And I hope that you like it. And again, I'll have a link in the show notes. So this one is titled, German World War II submarine found north of Auckland. Now, again, for those of you who don't know, Auckland is the city that I live in. Uh, And again, folks, please bear with me as I read this, because I'm reading it off of the monitor, and it's in a PDF. So, you know, there might be a little bit of stop and start as I scroll through it. So just bear with me. So it says, 60 years later, an underwater research group has discovered U-196 partially submerged, stern down in the sand, and apparently not fully flooded, in 15 meters of water. So it says here, U-196 was discovered by accident after she had moved inshore from where she was scuttled during a storm. The dive team located the hole some 15 meters below the surface. Now folks, why is this important? From a straight historical perspective, if we take nothing else into consideration, we were told that the Germans really didn't have anything to do in the South Pacific in World War II, not with submarines, with some surface ships at the beginning of the war, but basically we were told even the Japanese only went into Sydney Harbor briefly, okay, so basically... There should have been no submarines anywhere near New Zealand waters. And when I say anywhere near, I mean within a thousand miles or so of coming into New Zealand territorial waters in World War II. So if there's nothing else behind this, just that in and of itself is history changing. So this was by the late David Child Dennis. It says, It is surmised that the U-196 refueled from German convoy raider Orion somewhere near Palau, before making the German surrender, or sorry, before the German surrender brought inevitable internment, then headed south as the Japanese Navy was preparing for a general withdrawal to the home islands. So that would have been in about 44 or 45, folks. Approaching New Zealand from the north, the German U-boat slipped into the Tasman Sea, well clear of the American supply lines running from Fiji to Townsville, Australia. Submerging during daylight hours to avoid the air and sea patrols, the submarine, her batteries almost exhausted and air rapidly fouling, carefully surfaced to continue towards New Zealand. Sorry, folks, I've had an ad pop up here real quick. It's quite annoying, actually. Okay. So it said, uh, her batteries almost exhausted and air rapidly fouling, carefully surfaced to continue towards New Zealand. Wartime submarine crews will never forget that first ear popping rush of fresh, clean air as the diesels restart. By dawn, she had recharged her batteries and air supply to return to the depths and continue her slow crawl south. May in northern New Zealand waters is generally fine and warm. So again, for those of you in the northern hemisphere, just think opposite seasons. So that's about May, you know, for, oh no, sorry, May. So that's more like um, November. Yeah, but cool after dark. The U-boat had reached the coast just north of Dargaville, so that's in the far north of the North Island, in the early hours of the first available moonless night, sometime in mid-May. Everyone aboard understood Germany had surrendered on May the 8th, but their former ally, Japan, was still at war and the U-boat was likely to be mistaken for a Japanese submarine. They could not relax their guard for a second. By the end of the fifth day at sea, the boat was preparing to make landfall near Dargaville. After a long dogleg west out into the Tasman to avoid the air patrols from Waipapakuri, the boat made best speed due east towards the planned rendezvous. Everyone not needed below was ordered on deck to watch stations and make ready to leave the boat. After three nerve-wracking hours, the sandy beaches of the Dargaville coast suddenly appeared through the sea mist. They had made it, but what next? The crew immediately took to the life rafts taking only small personal possessions with them. With a final check, the captain and chief engineer sent scuttling charges and, with a last glance at an old comrade, joined the waiting crew. Within half an hour, they had reached the beach. They never saw U-196 vanish beneath the waves when the explosives tore open her forward compartment to the sea. The last thing they heard was a series of dull thuds and silently marking her passing. But U-196 was not to die that day. U-196 was a type IX-D2 submarine, launched at Bremen from the AG Wesser Shipyard on April 24, 1942. At just over 287 feet long and some 1,800 tons fully loaded, she was specifically designed as a long-range convoy raider. Under Corvette Captain Kenrot, she completed the longest patrol achieved by a submarine during World War II, 225 days at sea from March 13, 1943, to October the 23rd, 1943. Now that's about three quarters of a year, folks. On completion of this patrol, she was stripped of her armament and converted to a specialized cargo boat. She was supposedly lost in the Sunda Strait on November the 30th, 1944, to unknown causes. In other words, she failed to make a routine report to U-boat headquarters in Berlin and was presumed lost. Scientific cooperation. From 1942, the Germans had been producing uranium-235 oxide in cake form, deep underground in Czechoslovakia. This program was known only to a very few within the Reich. Even Albert Speer allegedly had no knowledge of the project. So Albert Speer was in charge of running the entire economy of Germany during World War II, and they're saying that not even he knew about making this uranium oxide, which was exclusively controlled by the SS under Dr. Hans Kammler he's another interesting man. Deputy Reichsführer Goring had hoped to produce a nuclear weapon, either an atomic or neutron bomb, by early 1945, and had commissioned the Horton brothers to build an upscaled version of their HO 229 tailless jet fighter to deliver a, quote, special weapon, unquote, to the U.S. East Coast. This was known as the American Bomber Project, a jet bomber designed to fly at 1,000 kilometers per hour for 11,000 kilometers and deliver a 3,000-kilogram weapon. It also required to reach 40,000 feet in altitude, which was beyond effective American radar range. But where did U-196 fit into all of this? Unbeknownst to Allied intelligence, the Japanese had established a nuclear research facility in Northern Korea, which had been occupied since 1910. Northern Korea, that is, not the research facility. Under the German-Japanese Technical Exchange Program, Germany supplied enough techno- technological aid to ensure the Japanese could manage their own domestic bomb project. This included supplying a number of scientists and technicians. Sometime during the middle of 1944, U-196 set sail from Germany, bound for Japan. However, on May 5, 5th, 1945, while still in Asian waters, she, along with all other German naval vessels, was recalled to Germany. Many of the U-boats didn't comply with such an order. Commanders untypically organized a vote about what the crew should do. Many opted to sail for South America, but U-196 appears to have taken a very different course. It arrived sometime during mid-May 1945 off the Northland coast near Dargaville with a crew that made no operational sense at all. They made an attempt to scuttle the boat and came ashore. 60 years later, the underwater research group discovered the boat, partially submerged stern down in under 15 meters of water. So that's less than 45 feet in the sand and apparently not fully flooded. And what happened to the crew? According to locals, the crew had made their way ashore, probably at night, where they appear to have been a dispute immediately after landing, during which one crew member was shot. Why is not known. But even more strangely, the crew, enemy aliens, were permitted to settle among the locals, where their grandchildren live today. Why? Now that, look folks, that is very odd. As none of the original crew remains, it is there we must again make assumptions. The Allies were unable to complete the manufacture of an atomic bomb before September 1945. The program was that the American fusing system was incapable of igniting the low-grade uranium oxide that Manhattan Project had produced up to that time. Testifying before the U.S. Congress, Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, senior scientist in charge of the Manhattan Project, stated uranium-235 cake was used to produce the first two bombs on Japan, and that it was recovered from a German-type XB U-boat, U-234, carrying 80 gold-lined cylinders containing 560 kilograms of uranium oxide. It had sailed to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, arriving 16th May 1945, where it surrendered to the U.S. Navy. The Americans immediately produced the bombs used against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But where had U-196 been on May 5th, 1945, when Germany recalled her navy? It's believed that she was in Korean waters delivering technical support to the, German, to the Japanese research facility. While the Germans had been defeated, they had hoped the Japanese may have produced a nuclear weapon before the Americans. The Russians were in receipt of accurate information about the Manhattan Project from pro-Soviet sympathizers who have infiltrated the operation, but they were unaware of the Japanese project. Moreover, the Japanese were not at war with the Soviets, and trade had continued between the two throughout the course of the war. The Japanese had gambled that Soviet forces would be deployed in the West against a possible combined allied German offensive to recover Eastern European territory overrun in the advance of Berlin. They believed it was possible to retain their Manchurian possessions, from which they could defend the Japanese home islands until they could complete their own bomb. But the Russians were already planning a massive invasion that was to overrun the Japanese Manchurian Empire in a matter of only two weeks. Commencing, uh, oh, sorry beginning in July 1945, finally advancing to within 10 kilometers of the Japanese home islands. It's thought the Germans who arrived on U-196 were part of the Japanese and German nuclear program, which was considerably more advanced than the Americans. The Allies were not prepared to allow such valuable specialists to fall in Soviet hands, so they arranged for them to disappear. And what better place than New Zealand? It would allow them to be debriefed in complete secrecy, then vanish into obscurity. U-196 was discovered by accident after she had moved inshore from where she was scuttled during a storm. The dive team that located the Hulk some 15 meters below the surface was unable to establish the engine room was either clear or only partly flooded. This has, uh, sorry, was able to, so they're saying that it's either got air in it or it's only got a little water. This has made the boat slightly buoyant and allowed it to shift in heavy seas. The intention of the dive group was to gain access to the engine room and attempt to refloat the U-196. However, they needed to ensure there was no radiation risk before entering the vessel. And then it says to be continued. So folks, uh, look, I've opened up several cans of worms here by reading you this article, and it's definitely things I want to cover over in the future. As time goes on, there has been more and more come out about World War II that what we were taught is at best, only partially true. Lots of things went on in World War II that we have been misled about, or we haven't been told about at all. And that's a fact. So many people say that this is a big conspiratorial thing. You know, there are many people out there who say, Oh, you know, people just want to make the Nazis look great, that they had all this technology. The bottom line is, it's true, folks. Now, I don't know about, you know, Nazi UFOs and moon bases and that. But I will tell you this. If the Nazis weren't worth having around the scientists and they didn't know what they were doing and they weren't in advance of America, why did Werner von Braun go to the US and basically kickstart NASA and allow us to get to the moon? Why was another former Nazi scientist put in charge of NASA? Okay? It's quite simple to me. Okay, these people were not on par with us and british scientists or below them they were either very advanced or they had very advanced theories at least why else would you need them okay it's that simple you know i i love it because people will say oh the germans weren't that far ahead of the u.s and the allies but at the same time oh well we need their scientists well if you're not ahead why do you need the scientists it just doesn't add up okay So, anyway, without going much further into a deep, dark rabbit hole right now, there's a lot about World War II to unpack that I would love to cover in future shows. And, again, I don't know what of it is true and what of it is false, but things like that. Operation Paperclip, Nazi scientists taken into the U.S., surreptitiously given new identities, everything else telling our elected officials that oh no these weren't nazis you know yeah they're they're germans but they weren't nazis they had nothing to do with the war and then you had people like werner von braun you know using slave labor to build uh v2 rockets that launched and killed thousands of people in the uk but oh yeah you know they didn't really have anything to do in the war again (laughs) things like this folks never underestimate a government to you know change the narrative when it's something they want. So with that, folks, I'll wrap that up for this week. It's a very interesting story. I don't know what happens. I haven't read the whole article and I will pick up part two next week. But again, I hadn't heard about this before, uh, you know, tonight. And I thought it was an awesome article to kind of read you as a bit of an introduction into some of the World War II stuff I will be covering in future. Now, I had family serve in World War II on the US side, obviously. Just because I sit here and I say that the Germans had all kinds of advanced technology, it's a very fine line because there's lots of people out there that will rush to call you an apologist for the Nazis and say, oh yeah, you think the Nazis were great and everything else because they had this, that technology. Look, the Nazis did uh, a lot of atrocities. They killed US troops. They they, They murdered millions of civilians. The Soviets did the same. Obviously, the Soviets didn't have gas chambers, and they weren't gassing Jews and everything else. Don't get me wrong, but all sides, to some degree or other, committed war crimes in World War II. The Nazis just happened to commit, along with the, along with the Japanese, they committed the most atrocities, okay? It doesn't mean that everyone else were angels and had squeaky clean wheels. And I know that because, again, as I told you, I knew lots of people who served in World War II. I interviewed them when I was young, and I had family members who did it. When your life is on the line, folks, what's black and white oftentimes becomes gray. Now, that's as far as I'm going to go into it. Again, all I'm saying is just because I will present some of these things to you in the future, just realize that, you know, just because I present that things like this, that the Germans had very advanced technology, don't for a second think that I'm some kind of Nazi apologist. And with that, folks, that wraps up the News of the Damned. As I say, links in the show notes. You can go and check out any of these articles you would like. And now we're going to get into what's happening in Illinois, part two. When JT thinks of Chicago, with all the things it's contributed to the world, I think of three things. First, the setting for the TV program Married with Children. Second, the setting for The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And third being one of my all-time favorite movies. Is it because I, as a fat man, also look good in a suit with sunglasses? Some mysteries the paranormal sun will never reveal. You'll just have to settle for this related story, my friends. The fictional home of Jake and Elwood Blues, the Old Joliet Prison, also housed notorious killers like John Wayne Gacy, who spent time there before being sent to Statesville. Mass murderer Richard Speck, and infamous crime-of-the-century murderers, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. A tragedy also happened at the prison way back in 1915, when the warden's wife, beloved by prisoners and known as the Angel of Joliet, was murdered there, prompting inmates to riot and demand her suspected killer be turned over to them. The prison closed its doors in 2002, but with numerous executions having taken place at the prison, rumor has it that many of the inmates may be serving time as ghosts, according to the Illinois Office of Tourism. Well, to the team over there at the Quite Unusual podcast, that looks like a good uh, good location to put on your paranormal road trip itinerary. Wouldn't be too far from you, so go over there and check out the old Joliet prison and report back. Let us know what you find. Now, folks, I'm going to get into the other 15 tales that I've got from around the state for you tonight. The first one is the Ramsey Cemetery Werewolf from Effingham, which is in the southeastern part of the state. Ramsey Cemetery, established in 1851 with the burial of namesake Alexander Ramsey, is also known as Casbar Cemetery and is a nighttime teen hangout. Driving out to the cemetery, it's easy to understand why so many people believe the area is haunted. In order to get to the cemetery, located about six miles north of Effingham, one must drive on a narrow winding road through large trees towering overhead. The cemetery itself is quite isolated surrounded by a forest, and many of the tombstones are old and in ruins. Besides the graves, rock shelters and sandstone caves are nearby, covered with carvings from its many visitors. A young man committed suicide inside a chapel that stood in the cemetery from the 1920s to the 1960s. The chapel has since been demolished. The story goes that one dark evening in the 1960s, a troubled young man drove out to the chapel. Once there, he grabbed a shotgun from the trunk of his car, walked inside the chapel, and proceeded to blow his head off. Another version of the tale has the man hanging himself instead. Among the many legends, there is a story of a man in a black cloak, with red glowing eyes, who is a manifestation resulting from cult activity that took place here in the past. Another legend tells of a werewolf that lives in the caves on the ground, and yet another says those who put a penny heads up on a tombstone will come back later on to find it upside down. The werewolf is said to be hiding in the nearby caves, and a spooky man with red eyes and a black cape are just two of the legends surrounding the Ramsey Cemetery. Both the black cape man and the werewolf reportedly have origins in the occult activity that is supposed to have taken place in the rock shelters near the cemetery. The werewolf can be heard howling, and has even occasionally been known to show itself to visitors late at night. Perhaps the man and the werewolf are actually one and the same entity. Now I'm going to get into the findings of a paranormal team that visited the cemetery in 2004. Among the many people who have ventured to the cemetery at night are local paranormal investigators Rhonda and Cassie, an aunt and niece team from Effingham who wished only to be identified by their first names. After getting permission from the owners, they investigated Ramsey Cemetery several times in 2004. It's always been a big party spot, and there's been tons of legends about cloak figures, ghostly figures on horseback, werewolves. Most people have a story about it, Cassie said. One of the stories I've been told is that people go up and find a tombstone and leave a penny on it, and they will come back and it will be changed. I think one of the most popular stories I've heard is the cloak figure with the red eyes. There's also been several reports of strange lights and strange sounds, she said. Rhonda said they use a digital and a 35 millimeter camera and a video camera with night vision during investigations. While the team has found some evidence in other locations, they did not find anything at Ramsey. We've done a couple investigations, and we've never got anything ourselves. But I'm not saying there's nothing out there, Cassie said. When asked about the rumors of haunted caves in the area, Cassie said she thinks the caves are actually small indentations in some rocks next to the creek that flows near the cemetery but she's not sure because the supposed caves are on private land. Area residents may never know what actually runs the grounds of Ramsey Cemetery at night, but its legend will likely live on. Now, for those of you that know anything about gangsters and the 1920s and 30s and Prohibition, you would have heard of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So this has got to do with the haunted bricks from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. A commercial garage on the north side of Chicago was the setting for the most horrific shooting in mob history, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. On February the 14th, 1929, seven members and associates of George Bugs Moran's bootlegging, bootlegging gang were lined up against a wall and shot dead inside the garage at 2122 North Clark Street. Al Capone's Chicago outfit was widely suspected of ordering the hit, but no one was ever prosecuted. The garage itself became a tourist attraction almost immediately after the initial shock wore off. According to an old account on PrairieGhost.com, in 1949 the front portion of the SMC garage was turned into an antique furniture storage business by a couple who had no idea of the building's bloody past. They soon found that the place was visited much more by tourists and curiosity seekers than by customers, and eventually they closed the business. Morbid curiosity made the building unusable for typical businesses, clearly, so it was demolished in 1967. Canadian entrepreneur George Pate bought the bricks, some of which had divots from bullets fired during the massacre. Before the building was completely demolished, a nightclub took over the space, and the bullet-riddled bricks from the massacre were placed on display in the men's bathroom. Over the next 42 years, the bricks were featured in a traveling exhibit, housed in a short-lived crime museum, and displayed in the men's restroom of a nightclub in in Canada. They finally found a permanent home at the Mob Museum in 2012. Legend, however, states that those individual bricks which were sold off to private collectors brought bad luck and even occasional death to those who owned them. The the location of the original garage where the St. Valentine's Day Massacre occurred is now simply the side lawn and parking lot area of a large nursing home. People are said to occasionally hear screams and machine gun fire emanate from the lawn and the entire area is said to spook animals and cause people to feel uneasy. People who walk past have complained of a negative energy and see floating orbs. Is the area haunted with the ghost of the seven killed there? Are the bricks still cursed, bringing misfortune to their owners? You decide. Now, this story is from East Peoria in the north-central part of the state, and this is the tale of the Coal Hollow Road monster. In July of 1972, an East Peoria teen reported that he and his friends had spotted a white, hairy, foul-smelling, 12-foot-tall monster around Coal Hollow Road. It lets out a long screech, like an old steam engine whistle, only more humanely, he said. Soon, as many as 200 armed men combed the area, but found nothing. During the search, one man accidentally shot himself trying to bag a deer. The hoopla died down before anyone else got hurt. In 1991, that same teen said that the report was a hoax. However, that same year, East Peoria police got a call from an anonymous local woman. She said she'd been driving on Coal Hollow Road when an eight-foot-tall hairy beast grabbed the back of her pickup truck and refused to let go. The beast finally relented and let her speed off. The sighting has never been explained. So again, folks, as I covered in the first episode of the Illinois Tales, Illinois is one of the states in the... Midwest and eastern part of the country that has the highest amount of Bigfoot sightings, so I'm not overly surprised by this one. This one, Big Muddy, several others in the state, it is quite fascinating that all of these different creatures seem to have different descriptions, but who knows what the reason is behind that. Now the next one is a very fascinating tale, folks, and you may not have heard of it, but this is one of the strangest, most bizarre tales that you'll ever hear and this tale comes from the eastern-central part of the state, from the town of Mattoon, and this is the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. 31st of August, 1944. During the early hours of the morning, Urban Rafe stirred from his slumber. A strange odor permeated the bedroom he shared with his wife. Urban woke his wife, alerting her to the peculiar smell. Mrs. Rafe suspected the pilot light on their gas stove had malfunctioned. When Mrs. Rafe attempted to leave the bed to check on the pilot light, she found her legs would not move. By this time, Mr. Rafe was unable to help his wife. He began to feel weak, and a wave of nausea swept through his body, and he began to vomit violently. Later that morning, in a neighboring house, a young mother was awakened by the coughs of her daughter. When she attempted to check on her daughter, she found that she was paralyzed, unable to get out of her bed. Over 75 years have passed since several Mattoon residents fell ill during a series of incidents that some at the time blamed on a sinister mad gasser, And others later attributed to mass hysteria. The approximately two-week-long series of Madgasser incidents, which started on August 31, 1944, still sparks the interest of those looking into Mattoon history, tales of the unknown, and case studies on mass hysteria. The Madgasser, if there was one, was never identified or apprehended by authorities. The September 8, 1944 Daily Journal Gazette ran a front page article amid World War II news, about recent victims of the Mad Prowler, such as a 60-year-old man who reported being sickened by something sprayed through a bedroom screen window. During the mid-1940s, Mattoon was subjected to a series of apparent gas attacks. While no physical evidence was ever found, police received more than two dozen reports of gassings in the span of just two weeks. The Mad Gasser story is compelling because there were so many incidents, approximately two dozen in a row, From late August until mid September, without a clear resolution. Then they just stopped, and no other incidents were reported. That lends itself to all kinds of possible outcomes about what caused it. Could the mad gasser have been an agent of the U.S. government who came to an obscure Midwestern town to test some military gas that could be used in the war effort? It might be telling that once national attention came to Mattoon, the authorities began a policy of complete denial and the attack suddenly ceased. Coincidence? The last Mad Gasser attack took place on September the 13th, and while it was the last incident connected to the attacker in Mattoon, it was also possibly the strangest. It occurred at the home of Mrs. Bertha Bench and her son Orville. They described the attacker as being a woman who was dressed in man's clothing and who sprayed gas into a bedroom window. The next morning, footprints that appeared to have been made by a woman's high-heeled shoes were found in the dirt below the window. After this night, the Mad Gasser of Mattoon was never seen or heard from again. While some attribute the events in Mattoon to paranormal activity, three more plausible theories exist. These three main theories about the incident include mass hysteria, industrial pollution, and an actual assailant. The lack of concrete evidence may make discovering the truth of this incident impossible. However, regardless of the exact cause of the event, it remains an exciting chapter of history in the small town of Mattoon, Illinois. Now, the next one also comes from near Peoria, folks, and this is the tale of Old Book. In the earliest years of the 20th century, the Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville was home to a dear, mute man known only as A. Bookbinder. Strong and steady, he would dig graves for asylum funerals, ending each by sobbing hysterically and leaning on a tree that became famously known as the Graveyard Elm. In June 1910, Old Book went the way of all men, And the entire asylum came out for his farewell. Near the end, an apparition appeared at the graveyard elm, Old Book weeping and moaning as always. But as soon as startled officials cracked open his casket to double check on the dead man's whereabouts, the crying ceased, and Old Book's form vanished from the tree. Inside the coffin, onlookers spotted Old Book's peaceful face. Now, this is one of the more famous tales from the state, although it's often associated more with the St. Louis area because it is very close by. St. Louis in Missouri. So this is the McPike Mansion in Alton, and Alton is in the far west south part of the state on the Missouri, just north of St. Louis. On a rather unassuming street in the otherwise nice town of Alton, Illinois, there lies a sinister estate that was once called the most haunted place in the Midwest. The McPike Mansion is just one of the reasons Alton is considered one of the most haunted cities in America. The house was built in 1869 by architect Lucas Feffenberger. The original owner of the mansion was Henry Guest McPike. The house was sold in 1908 to Paul Lakinger, who rented rooms in the house to other occupants. Lakinger's ghost is said to still haunt the property to this day. Thousands of visitors and paranormal investigators have visited the grounds of the notorious McPike mansion, claiming spirits still roam the property. Some claim the haunts date back to the property before the mansion was even built with Native American ghosts and a residue from possible Underground Railroad stop. Other mysterious stories include servants of the building, a cook in the kitchen, and the strange death of a woman in a bathtub. Some even believe that Eleanor and Henry McPike still roam the corridors of their former home. All total, more than 11 different spirits have been experienced in recent years. When George and Sharon Ludke bought the rundown McPike mansion in Alton for $42,000 at an auction in 1994. They didn't realize the cost to rehab it would be so overwhelming. They also didn't know it was haunted, or so they say, as do others who have visited. Sharon's first experience was when she tripped on a loose floorboard and she felt a tug on her leg, as if she was being saved from falling, she recalled. About four days after purchasing the mansion, she had a dream about her grandmother telling her, It's all going to be okay. She decided to start repairing the mansion, but only on one condition. If you, the spirits, want this house fixed, you better not scare me, she said, because if you scare me, I'm out of here. Sharon says she was working in the garden when she saw the ghost of Paul Lankinger, a subsequent owner of the house after the McPikes, standing by a window in the house. He was wearing the exact same outfit as one he was wearing in a picture Sharon has of him. Sharon says that since then she's had many run-ins with ghosts. She says she was hugged by the spirit of Sarah, a former servant at the estate. For about two decades, the Ludkies have given tours of the brick Italianate mansion and hosted seances, campouts, and anything else they can think of to bring attention to the historic building and also raise money for its restoration. Lydia is Henry McPike's mom, who didn't live in the house but likes to make her presence known. Ludke says she's seen the ghost of Henry McPike, who appears as a dark shadow and sometimes wears a coat. He has appeared in the front window in one photo, she says. It is not uncommon to find in photos of the mansion orbs, balls of light, even figures appearing in the windows that were not seen by the human eye when the photo was taken. This grand old house is thought to still house many of the spirits that once lived there. Many psychics and medians have felt the presence of what they believe to be the McPike family, servants, as well as some of those who resided in and owned the house since 1936. The wine cellar is said to be the most haunted location of the whole property. Footsteps and voices have been heard, and the heavy metal door that leads to the cellar has been seen moving on its own. A strange, unexplainable mist has even been reported following guests as they move through the cellar. In 1992, what eventually became Alton Odyssey Tours was founded. The owner recalled a memorable night at McPike Mansion when she and the tour members saw a full-blown apparition coming down the mansion stairs. She looked for, lack of a better term, Hollywood, with a a diaphanous gown of an iridescent blue, Lewis recounted. Her hair and gown were flowing, as if there was a wind machine aimed at her. She described, but her feet were oddly fluttering, almost ballet-like, suspended a few inches above the stairs. Lewis said that to this day, when somebody tells her, I was on that one tour. She knows exactly what they meant. It really took our breath away, she said. Everyone was mesmerized by it. So again, folks, that's the McPike Mansion in Alton, Illinois. If you want to head over there and check it out, make sure you report back and let me know. But there have been thousands of people through there on different tours. And my understanding is that the inside is actually condemned. So for a long time, they weren't allowed to take people in. I don't know if that was recently or not but people would walk around outside and they would claim to see things in the windows and that. But nonetheless, a fascinating tale. And, you know, the tale from this uh, tour guide that, you know, they saw this uh, apparition coming down the stairs. In my mind, it almost would look like something that you would see at the Haunted Mansion at uh, Disneyland or Disney World, you know, for those of you who have been there. That's kind of how the description, you know, seems to me anyway. Now, the next one is quite a brief one. And this is from Oswego, which is just northeast of Chicago on the fringe. Uh, So it's just, sorry, it's in the northeast part of the state on the fringe of Chicago. Cherry Road outside of Oswego is said to have been the scene of a tragic accident. While predominantly straight, there is the sharp 90-degree angle toward the end of the road. A young couple allegedly wrecked their car after prom while taking that curve too fast. The boy crawled from the wreckage and wrote, Help! in his own blood on the pavement. His girlfriend's ghost can be seen at the bend. Over the years, local teams have painted help on the road with red spray paint. Well, folks, I think that many places have legends of a, of a bend in the road called Dead Man's Curve. I, I knew of one where I was growing up as a boy, and there were stories about, you know, a car going off the road and people seeing ghosts. So, again, urban legend or something more. As always, folks, here at the Paranormal Sun, I leave it up to you to decide. Now the next one is quite an interesting one and it's similar to tales from many places and this is from egypt which is in the far southern part of the state and this is the tale of the vanishing man egypt illinois has its very own prize ghost legend according to this legend a man boards the bus in egypt when the bus crosses the bridge however the man disappears some years back a man suddenly died while waiting at a bus stop in the city and now his spirit is trapped riding the same bus line into eternity as the vanishing man. He has been known to get on the bus, only to disappear from plain sight as soon as the bus passes over a particular bridge. There's no way of knowing if it's him, that is, until he vanishes into thin air right before your eyes. Now, folks, this is a very fascinating tale. And as I've told you uh, on the last episode about Illinois, the city of Decatur is, you know got so many different tales of hauntings and and paranormal activity and i'd never heard of this story but uh this is a really in-depth interesting one so sit back this one will take a little bit for us to get through and again for those of you who don't know the state very well decatur's right in the middle of the state it's kind of you know it's not far from springfield and those are considered kind of like twin cities they're they're quite close together you've got springfield and decatur florence culver and her husband john sitting down to dinner on a late fall evening in 1903 when Florence was frightened to hysterics by what she witnessed coming out of the fireplace. According to Lynn Potter of the historic Decatur Foundation, the story of what scared Florence in her home at 412 West Prairie Avenue was passed down for years in the family's oral history. She saw this black apparition, Potter said. It floated across the room, through the wall, into the kitchen, and then it just disappeared. The next morning, she had John rip up that fireplace and brick it up to keep it from coming down that chimney again. Culver wasn't alone in seeing something supernatural in Decatur in November of 1903. In fact, for a week straight, Decatur, particularly the west end of town, was terrified by a veiled black figure carrying a baseball bat. Some believed it was really a ghost. Others said it was someone in costume. There are many stories of hauntings in Decatur, few that have received as much attention in the general public at the time of their appearances as the black ghost which there are reports of as far back as 1880 it was described in the november 14th 1903 decatur herald as a creeping thing with awful eyes that burn like fire the face of the terrible creature covered with a veil added to the frightful appearance of the ghastly something bringing bringing forth screams from the unaccompanied ladies of the west end of the city as they go to their homes. I'm really not sure what the black ghost was, Potter said, but the Culvers weren't the only ones who saw it, so there was definitely something going on. The Herald reported that some thought it might have been a man dressed in woman's clothes, but several witnesses noted the eyes are almost fiery and piercing, and that a veil fell over the head. The next night the figure was seen, peeping into the windows and prowling the bushes. Groups of young men took to the streets looking for the figure, but no one was found. Black ghost fervor reached its peak on November the 16th. After having terrorized the west side, the black ghost moved east. The Decatur Herald reported, The black ghost, that is all that people are talking about. It is the one thing that men, women, and children fear, and it is now even concerning the police. The wildest run ever made by the patrol wagon occurred late last night, and it was because the officers were after the ghost. The black horses hitched to the black-covered Wagon dashed into the blackness of East El Dorado at a rate of speed that was terrific, all in order to catch the black ghost. In addition to its police chase down the El Dorado, it was nearly cornered by some railroad boys at Martin's Restaurant, which is at 604 North Jasper Street for those keeping track at home. And people all over the east side of town reported tapping at their windows, knocks at their doors, and other mysterious sounds. A girl named Lulu Williams was brought in under suspicion. She was described as 18 and drunk. (laughs) Yeah, most of us have been there at some point in our life. She was quoted as saying, Am I the black ghost? Of course I am. I'm the one who has been scaring all these people, and tonight I'm drunk. I'm glad that you have got me arrested for the ghost. The most detailed sighting came from Fred Travis and Del Huey, employees of C, H, and D Freight House at 6.20 p.m., just north of the intersection of Monroe and Cerro Gordo. Travis is recorded as have said, Huey and I were about halfway between Cerro Gordo Street and the railroad, on Monroe, when we saw an odd figure in front of us and coming in our direction. The thing that attracted my attention was the fact that the figure did not have the motion of a man walking, but seemed to glide along. Then I noticed that the face was covered with what seemed to be a black veil. Huey and I at once concluded it was the ghost, and we ran forward. The man or woman or whatever it was turned and ran the other way. When it moved north from us, it still had that motion of gliding. I had a piece of board in my hand that I was taking home for kindling, and I threw that at the figure, but it didn't hit it. Just then the figure disappeared, and I don't know if it turned the corner and went out on the Wabash right of way, or if it turned into a yard there. At any rate, we could not find it, and we made a search. Travis said the ghost was five foot nine, with broad shoulders, and wore a nun's habit with a veil. It was holding a stick 18 inches long. Travis, who had recently placed for a semi-professional baseball team, was regarded as one of the fastest men in the city. Regardless, the ghost easily outpaced them. Later that same night, a man named Theodore Fowler also encountered the Black Phantom, this time on West Decatur Street. He was in the 900 block, walking east on the north side of the street at about 10.30pm, when he saw a black shrouded figure appear ahead of him. It glided along for about half a block, and then abruptly vanished. This convinced him that the figure he had seen was a ghost. The people of Decatur were convinced that a real ghost was in their midst, and search parties were organized to try and track the monster down. Early in the evenings, crowds of men and boys could be found in every part of the West End. El Dorado and Monroe streets were thoroughly searched. All of the search parties went armed with sticks and clubs, apparently hoping to thrash the ghost if they managed to catch it. They roamed the streets and alleys for most of the night, shouting and laughing to one another. The only thing these ghost hunters managed to find was trouble, since sleeping residents began reporting their behavior to the police around midnight. Decatur Police Chief Daniel Sullivan was skeptical of the ghost. He said the original ghost had been a woman trying to catch her husband with another woman, and that after the original had accidentally frightened a couple of people and the newspaper made mention of it, others took advantage of the ghost scare and went out to have some fun. Still. Sunday and Monday night, the entire police force patrolled the outskirts in the hope of catching the ghost. At, at that point, the black ghost had become a joke, but it's at least a little creepy that there were similar supernatural sightings made 23 years earlier. In the early days of the Decatur Herald, the December 31st, 1880 edition contained the headline, A Ghost. The story describes several black citizens of Decatur near St. Peter's African Methodist Episcopal Church, 515 South Church Street, seeing, quote, A huge, dark object, darker than the darkest night. It bore the general appearance of a gigantic man, headless and armless, and it moved swiftly, though it did not walk. A large number of people claimed to have seen it, even Macon County Board of Supervisors Commissioner Houston Singleton. Many believed it to be the spirit of Isaiah Barrister, who had been murdered by Mike Hackett four years ago. The ghost appeared in various shapes. At time, it wore the garb of a man, and other times a shroud. It caused enough of a stir that, like in 1903, there was a large group on watch, with pistols, boomerangs, and chileles ready in case they saw something. Nothing like a good shillelagh. The 1880 incident happened just before construction began on the Culver House. Those involved with the restoration of the Culver House the last 17 years have never seen the Black Ghost, but many of them have heard strange noises in the old mansion. It's obviously haunted, said historic Decatur Foundation member Joyce Rhodes. I know people have seen lights and orbs. While construction began on the house in 1881, it wasn't finished until after John Culver purchased it in 1901. The house was converted into a but it fell into ruin in the 1970s. A murder occurred in the Culver house in 1988, and there were also two suicides. Potter said the house was built on an Indian burial ground, and we all know that's an ongoing theme. The mystery of the Black Ghost will likely never be solved, but it certainly managed to establish Decatur as a weird and haunted place, even back in 1903. Okay, folks, this next one is from the southwestern part of the state, near Carbondale. And this is one of the creatures with one of the coolest nicknames for a cryptid. And this is the Murfreesboro Mud Monster, also known as Big Muddy. The year was 1973. It was summer in Murfreesboro, Illinois but the town would never be the same. A couple parked near a boat ramp when they saw a large, non-human figure approaching them, making a terrifying noise. They told the police about the incident. The police didn't believe them, but they went to the scene and saw large footprints. They came back again, and then they heard a terrifying noise. The hairy, smelly biped, a.k.a. Big Muddy, was seen several more times that summer of '73, lurking near Murfreesboro, along the banks of the Big Muddy River. Since then, no sightings of the Murfreesboro Mud Monster have been reported. But the story lives on. Like Peoria's Coal Hollow Road monster, the Murfreesboro creature was described as being 7 feet tall and covered in matted white fur. Police officers found several tracks at the scene of the first sighting and even heard its inhuman cry. After a few weeks of intense scrutiny, the Murfreesboro Mud Monster disappeared as mysteriously as it had arrived. Well, the next one here, folks, is one of the creepiest ones. On tonight's agenda, and in fact even the name of the cemetery has got that paranormal vibe. It's called Moon Point Cemetery, and this is in the north-central part of the state. The legend of an axe-wielding old lady, among other strange tales, has been told at this rural Illinois cemetery for decades. Moon Point Cemetery is an old graveyard located just south of Streator in Livingston County. Like other rural graveyards, Moon Point became an object of folklore in the late 1960s and 70s, when local teens, looking for a place to, quote, hang out, unquote, after dark, picked this isolated location to drink, spin yarns, and play pranks on one another. According to the history of Livingston County, Illinois, 1878, Moon's Point got its name from Jacob Moon, who, along with his daughter and three sons, was the first to settle that particular area. Moon had fought in the War of 1812, and like other veterans of that war, He moved west in search of cheap and abundant land. Yeah, it's always cheap when you push the natives off. In 1830, the family settled along a winding creek near a wooded area in Illinois country that became known as Moon Point. Moon Point Cemetery is located adjacent to Moon Creek, leading many to refer to the graveyard as Moon Creek Cemetery. Moon Point is haunted by the ghost of a hatchet lady. The lady went insane, the story goes, after either her son or her daughter died and each night of a full moon, a spirit is seen running around the cemetery, tossing hatchets. She has, as one might guess, been seen carrying a hatchet while keeping watch over her son's grave, and has been known to shout menacingly at visitors to, Get out! when they come too close to his resting place. While there is no historical evidence for this hatchet lady, it has been verified that a man interred in the cemetery had been murdered with an axe in 1886 but it was during a drunken brawl at a local coal mine. Another tale associated with Moon Point concerns an abandoned house, previously owned by a witch no less, that is also rumored to be haunted. It has been theorized that the story of the witch and the hatchet lady are related, but nevertheless, many tales of seances and illicit trespasses have come from the location. Quinn, commenting on ghosttraveler.com, which has since been deleted, revealed the house was actually an old barn located about 100 yards from the cemetery. Whatever it was, it seems to have been torn down. A man named Mark, also on GhostTraveler.com, related his encounters at Moon Point during a film project in which he claimed to record colorful lights, whisperings, and the grating of a large concrete object against another. Furthermore, he wrote that the hatchet lady, or some other spirit, whispered, get out, in his ear. Al Morris of the Midwest Ghost Hunter and Paranormal Investigators also added children giggling to the list of strange occurrences. Other phenomenon in the cemetery include the ghostly spirit of a young boy, multicolored orbs of light, and even the haunting sounds of sarcophagus lids opening and closing. The remoteness of the location is accentuated by the fact that a railroad track bisects the road leading to the cemetery, East 3150 North. It is said that anyone who is caught in the cemetery while a train passes will be trapped there. Well, that much is actually true. According to legend, however, your car may also die and not be able to restart until after the train is gone. The variety of legends associated with Moon Point Cemetery makes it one of the more interesting haunted cemeteries in Illinois. Feel free to visit, but pray that the Hatchet Lady has a poor aim. Now, folks, as I told you, as I researched for these episodes the depth and you know detail in many of these cases was really astounding to me pretty much in the state you've got you know a huge you know amount of tales everything from bigfoot and other cryptids to of course all kinds of ghost stories and witches and hauntings and here we have got the epitomous waterborne creature you know lake or sea monster and this comes from chicago and this is the tale of the Lake Michigan Sea Serpent. Between 1867 and 1890, Chicago newspapers raved over sightings of a scaled serpent, 40 to 50 feet in length, very dark blue, with a grayish-white belly. In 1867, a fisherman gave a very detailed description of the creature, claiming it had come within 20 feet of his boat. It was swimming about a mile and a half off the shore of the south side of Chicago. According to an 1893 Tribune story, officers at fort sheridan on the north shore now the sheridan reserve center were so shaken by local sea serpent sightings they signed a pledge to let liquor alone yeah um, i guess that even back then you would get you know you would get derided for these things so better make sure you're not drinking that hillbilly moonshine you might see sea serpents and, and eventually things in the sky chicago however signed no such pledge and from the 1860s to the 1930s reports of the lake michigan serpent were frequent I looked through my opera glasses and I could see it not like that I could see it was not like a boat a Lincoln Park resident told the newspaper in 1899 though unlike pressy the lake superior monster or champ the lake champlain monster or bessie from lake erie lake michigan's monster never had a clear identity so that said they never gave it a nickname folks so you know maybe we should have a contest and and name the lake michigan sea monster i don't know when the latest sighting was, but it sounds like it kind of died down from the 1930s on. Now, here we go. This is a very creepy tale, but also it's got a good bit of sadness to it. Now, this is the tale of the St. Omer Cemetery, which is in the central eastern part of the state. This grave in a ghost town cemetery marks the death of a witch on a day that never happened. Driving along one of many country roads in the miles of Illinois cornfields, a gravel road will lead you to the town of St. Omer, or what's left of it at least, its cemetery. The ghost town might have been forgotten if not for the strange Barnes Monument, the subject of a local witch legend. The Barnes gravestone is a ball atop a pyre, so a pyre being like a fire, folks. While many of the other graves in the cemetery are oriented east to west, this one curiously faces north and south. Four people are buried there, Marcus Barnes, his parents Granville and Sarah, and his wife Carolyn, whose stated date of death could never have happened, February the 31st, 1882. The prevailing lore is that Carolyn Barnes was a witch, or at least was accused of being one. She was hanged, or depending on who you ask, burned, or even buried alive, for her magical crimes. The sphere atop her tombstone is actually a crystal ball, which is said to glow on moonless nights. The impossible date is actually a preventative measure. The witch would rise again on her death date, but if her death date never came, she wouldn't reappear. People also claim that film photographs of the Barnes grave won't develop, though digital ones seem to do just fine, and the secret rituals are carried out there in the dead of night. The last claim may have some credence to it, given that the ball has repeatedly been found with melted white candle wax stripped on top of it. In reality, there are few facts to back up accusations of witchery. Local lore seems to have sprung out of the weird anomalies surrounding the tombstone. There is, however, some tragic history surrounding the Barnes family. Marcus Barnes died in a sawmill accident in 1881 and was buried with his parents. Just two months later, Carolyn would die of pneumonia at the age of 23. Her actual death date was either the 26th or 28th of February. February 31st was likely just a typo too expensive to fix, not to mention that there was no one left in the Barnes family to mend the error. In fact, there wasn't even anyone in the town. The town of St. Omer only held about 40 to 50 families, a post office, a blacksmith, and a general store. By the time the Barnes family had died off, the town had done the same. Now, fittingly, all the remains of St. Omer is its cemetery. Aside from the mysterious monument, The remote and serene cemetery has many other old grave markers worth perusing. It's a brief walk through the history that Carolyn Barnes is somewhat responsible for keeping alive. Now on we go with the tales of the weird folks, and this one is from the north central part of the state, north of Peoria, and this is the tale of the Springdale Pterodactyl. And yes, that's Springdale, not Springfield. So in 2013, a reader of the Chilco Times Bulletin swore that he'd seen a pterodactyl swooping over Springdale Cemetery. During the lunch hour one weekday, while driving past the graveyard, he saw a tremendous pair of wings soaring above the mausoleum. He said other drivers were looking and pointing at the same place in the sky, but he apparently was the only one to pull a U-turn and speed to Springdale. He described the bird as black and prehistoric, with a wingspan of at least 30 feet. It looked like a pterodactyl, but not with such a bony nose. Also, one other thing he said, it looked like it was hunting. He swore he wasn't drinking or otherwise addled. Again, you know, gotta watch that hillbilly moonshine. So a writer for the paper accompanied him to the graveyard to look for a very big bird. The search came up empty until he wrote about the misadventure in the paper. Readers deluged him with the story after story about seeing big mystery birds at Springdale and elsewhere in the area. At the lagoon in Glen Oak Park, a pterodactylish bird was spotted. The bird did not seem to be afraid of people, a reader said. Off Alta Lane, a bird as tall as a man stopped to look at a homeowner's koi pond. Its wingspan was perhaps 30 feet. It flew off without incident. Above Proctor Hospital, a huge prehistoric bird flew as high as airplanes, a reader said. She added, I didn't report it because who would believe me? Behind the journal star, always rife with strange beings, a bizarre bird appeared next to the train tracks. It was bigger than an eagle, a reader said. It looked like a gargoyle. Over the years, the writer has received smatterings of reports of pterodactyls at Springdale. Supposedly, it barks like a dog and nests in remote areas. Now, folks, again, as always, I leave it up to you to decide what things like this could be. But, you know, it said it's not afraid of people. So, you know, could this be something that the government or some other party has genetically modified? They brought, you know, the pterodactyl basically back. And not told anyone, and one's gotten loose. Who knows? All I know is, you know, I do feel for these people that see such things and then just get called nutters and everything else. As the lady said, who would believe me, you know? So I really do feel bad for those people because, you know, you watch any UFO show, you watch any of these shows, and the way that they talk about witnesses, you know, like they're just alcoholics or hillbillies or, you know, inbred or, you know, it's gotten a little bit better lately, but. It's ridiculous the way they talk about other people like they're all completely insane. Of course, there are people who lie about these things. Of course, there are made up tales. And of course, there are misidentifications. But, you know, to just shout someone down because you don't like what they're saying and you don't like what they claim that they've seen to me is just, you know, it's not a very good human virtue to have to just call someone an idiot because you don't agree with what they saw. Well, now, folks, the last one for this evening I've got for you is quite a fascinating one. It's one of the strangest cases of a cryptid that I've ever heard of, not only in Illinois, but period. And this one is from Enfield, which is in the southeast part of the state, the far southeast part. And maybe you've heard of this title before. Now, this is the Enfield Horror. Now, that's not to be confused with the Enfield Poltergeist, which occurred in London. In the 1940s, A leaping, monkey-like creature was spotted in Mount Vernon, Illinois. Thirty years later, a similar beast, though now with three legs and eyes as bright as flashlights, was seen several times in nearby Enfield, including one report from a local radio newsman. Perhaps one of the most peculiar cryptids in the world, this thing was seen hopping around the city of Enfield, just generally causing mayhem. It was short, three to four feet tall, with T-Rex arms, That's a shout-out there to Lisa. Uh, You'll definitely have a chuckle about that. With T-Rex arms and massive pink eyes that jutted out like flashlights. Witnesses say that the thing was covered in thick gray hair. It was first spotted on April the 25th, 1973, attacking a young boy as he played in his backyard, flattening him on the ground and lashing out at him with his tiny, ineffective little arms. It bounded away easily when the boy's father ran at it, covering distance at an astonishing pace. At about 9.30 p.m. on the night of April the 25th, 1973, Henry McDaniel heard a scratching sound at his front door. He looked out and saw something that he thought might be a bear. Taking a gun and a flashlight, he headed outside into a strong wind and saw a creature between two rose bushes. He later said it had three legs on it, a short body, two little short arms, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights. It stood four and a half feet tall, and it was grayish-colored, He added later that it was almost like a human body. McDaniel fired four shots at the creature, one shot hitting it and causing it to make a hiss, much like a wildcat's, before fleeing towards a nearby railway embankment, covering 50 feet in just three jumps. McDaniel called the local authorities who discovered footprints in the soft earth near the house, which McDaniel described as dog-like in shape with six toe pads. The police considered McDaniel to be rational and sober, in his reporting of the incident. In a later press interview, McDaniel said, if they do find it, they will find more than one, and they won't be from this planet, I can tell you that. It was seen wandering along the roadside several times after this. Face fully intact, but it never did show itself again in a populated area. Two weeks later, on May the sixth, McDaniel called the radio station WWKI, claiming to have seen the creature again, at 3 a.m. that morning. It was negotiating the trestles of the railroad tracks near his home, and McDaniel said, I saw something moving out on the railroad track, and there it stood. I didn't shoot at it or anything. It started on down the railroad track. It wasn't in a hurry or anything. A search party including WWKI's news director, Rick Rainbow, explored the area later that day and reported observing an ape-like creature standing in an abandoned building near McDaniel's house. They claimed to have made a recording of the creature's cries and fired a shot at it before it fled. It was then that noted cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman. Now, those of you who know a lot about cryptozoology, Lauren Coleman is definitely a mythic figure in the cryptozoology world, and I've definitely heard a lot about him. So, Lauren Coleman arrived on the scene to investigate the eyewitness claims as well as the sound recording. Coleman also heard the haunting cry of the creature while searching an area. Where eyewitnesses claim to have seen the thing. Quote, I traveled to Enfield, interviewed the witnesses, looked at the side of the house at the Enfield monster had damaged, heard some strange screeching banshee-like sounds, and walked away bewildered. In the 1974 July edition of Fate magazine, Lauren Coleman and Jerome Clark feature the Enfield horror in an article entitled Swamp Slobs Invade Illinois. Coleman even chronicled discussing this intriguing case with famed paranormal investigator as well as best-selling author of The Mothman Prophecies, John A. Keel, in his book Mothman and Other Curious Encounters. What was it? Guesses range from an alien to a deformed kangaroo to a chemistry experiment gone bad. It was suggested that the creature may have been a kangaroo escaped from a nearby zoo, which would explain the three legs. Description as the tails of kangaroos look like a third leg. McDaniel was adamant that the creature wasn't no kangaroo, having owned such a creature as a pet while on military service in Australia, and noting that kangaroos have narrow faces and tracks that leave claw marks. A few days after the event, United Press International quoted an anthropology student who suggested that the creature may have been a wild ape, noting that such animals have been reported throughout the Mississippi area since 1941. Other investigators have suggested that the monster was associated with the spate of UFO sightings that allegedly plagued the region during the same period, and those with a more supernatural bent have asserted that the beast, with its tendencies to be aggressive towards humans and try to break into their homes, has all the earmarks of a classic demon attack. Whatever this creature is or is not, it has not been reported in almost 40 years. That, however, does not mean that it is not still lurking in the shadows Of some old train yard waiting to return to scratch on another door in the wee hours of the night. Well folks, hopefully you've enjoyed all these tales from the land of Lincoln. I got started and I just couldn't pare down the list, so I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I've enjoyed bringing them all to you. Now folks, next week's program is going to be on the world-famous New Zealand UFO case of the Kaikoura Lights, so I hope you look forward to that. I've had some listeners who have asked me, what about New Zealand, what goes on there? Do you get a lot of UFO sightings? So we will cover that sighting next week. And as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter, which does reside within, may not be reached.